Hi, this is Patricia. And this is Christina. And this is What They're Worth. A podcast exposing the truths of everyday people who are willing to enter the beautiful mess of foster care and adoption. We're glad you're here. Welcome back to another episode of What They're Worth. Today we're recording episode 16 and I am more than pumped for this conversation today with our guest Lydia. So I found her on Instagram as I have been lately known to stalk people and approach them through what we all know as the DM. And (laughs) thankfully she agreed to speak to me and I'm so excited for everybody to learn from her story. So Lydia was adopted pretty young into a Caucasian family, and she's a beautiful woman of color. And she's going to share what that's like for her, what her process was um, into coming into her identity as an adoptee, and also processing through adoption while growing up in the church. So I learned a lot, and know you guys will too. So I'll stop talking now and let her introduce herself. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited. So like she said, my name is Lydia. I am a transracial adoptee. I'm African-American and I was adopted into a white um, household. Both my parents are white. My older brother is white. I'm African-American. I have two younger siblings that are also African-American. So I was adopted privately um, and I was adopted within the first year of my life. So my family is all I've ever known. I don't know my birth family, you know, didn't grow up knowing anything outside of a white family. And I think you talked to me a little bit about, like, a lot of people talk about when they kind of notice that or that, (laughs) like, when that reality hits them. Yeah. Um, For me, I think I... I know I always knew, right? Like everyone around me was white. I was clearly not. Um, There wasn't really a moment where my family had to say or sit me down, by the way, you are right. (laughs) Um, I think it really set in when I was, when I started dancing. I started dancing when I was like five or six. Um, And I danced further away from my house. It was like a half an hour drive, but it was mostly children of color. So I had this contrast of at school, at church, all my neighbors, everyone was white. And then I went there and everyone, or most people were black. So I I realized that early on, it was never like a big moment for me, which is how it should be, right? That's how adoptees should feel. People should know that they are different and that's okay. Mm -hmm. I think by people making it a big deal and having these sit-down conversations, it makes it this big thing that it's not. It's normal, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Lydia, I have a funny story before you get too further, too much further in of my daughter, because what you just said made me laugh, because my daughter, <laughs> she's half African-American, and mm-hmm. um, I think maybe a year, maybe two, I don't even know now, it goes so quickly, but she was studying Martin Luther King Jr. at school. And so I, you know, thought there might be a conversation coming up about her whiteness, (laughs) you know? And so, but it wasn't planned. It kind of just happened in the car where almost all of our conversations happened. Right. And we had just left the Dollar General. I will never forget this moment. And we got into the car and she was telling me about this really cool egg experiment she was doing for Martin Luther King. You know, they're different colors, but they're both the same. Yeah. And I, you know, I was like, this is it. This is the moment. I'm going to tell her that she's white. Okay. (laughs) I'm sitting in the driver's seat. I'm like looking back at her. And I said, well, guess what's really cool? And she says, what? And I said, you are half black and half white. Isn't that something really cool to celebrate? And her face just crinkled up. She was so confused. And she looked at me and she said, I'm black? And it was the total 
opposite of what I had been preparing for. So my mind was like, abort mission, abort mission, turn around, turn around. Because she's dark. Her skin is darker. Yeah, she's dark. And so she's staring at her arm in like amazement. And I am speechless, really, because I have no idea how to process this either. Yeah, look at your skin. Like, let's compare. You know, I'm olive, but I'm definitely not black. And, you know, I'm like, look, you're darker than me. Like, you have that, you know, darker complexion. She's like, to her, it was so weird because she, the how she reasoned it was in that moment was that she had black friends who were much blacker than she was. Right. And so she didn't really see herself as black. And I remember going to school the next day and my neighbor, my school neighbor, teacher neighbor, who was more like a mom figure, I told her this story and she's like, Christina, what do you expect? She is just immersed in this white culture all the time. Mm-hmm. So why would she associate herself as black? And I'm like, dang, I did not see that one coming. And bio mom, <laughs> bio mom was white and yeah. she didn't and know her African-American exactly. father. So she didn't have that right. memory either. So. Yeah, and I think that my parents, it wasn't, like, in a weird way, but we just talked about it, right? Like, beautiful brown skin, like, gotta make sure you don't look ashy. Like, my parents would not let me go out looking ashy, right? They, like, get the cocoa butter, get the baby oil, whatever it is, right? So, and my mom learned how to do my hair, and I knew it wasn't like her hair. So, Mm -hmm. there was ways that it was just part of my life. There didn't you know, we didn't have to have the conversation as some people do have to have. Mm-hmm. But even though it was kind of nor- normal to you and you had kind of accepted it, that didn't mean you weren't getting the feedback from other people. So talk talk about a little bit what that was like growing up. Oh my gosh. Um, it was difficult. It was really difficult. And I think as I've grown up, I have realize more, you know, kind of getting out of that space, processing it, I realized how difficult it really was, you know. Um, The first time I really realized that I was different, right, like I knew I looked different, I didn't know I would be treated different. In third grade, there was a girl who didn't invite me to a birthday party, because Mm -hmm. I wasn't pretty, and because I was brown, right. So that's when I started to realize, you know, something that I had viewed as so beautiful, others didn't. Mm -hmm. And that followed me, you know, throughout my years going to school, being surrounded by conservative white people, they'd make comments and say things kind of the backhanded compliment things, right? Like, they think they're being kind, like, one is like, you know, you talk white. Mm. Like people think that's actually a compliment, right? Mm-hmm. And what they're actually doing is pushing forward the narrative of black stereotypes. Mm-hmm. So you talk white, you're educated. Okay, so are other black people not? Or, you know, mm-hmm. things like that, that just became kind of, regular conversations I was having with people and while they obviously weren't normal it was just kind of like that's what white people say I guess this is what I assumed and so it was very difficult kind of just dealing with all these feelings and experiences with no one really to share it with Mm -hmm. and I, I remember when we talked you were talking about how your personality you kind of just held it in you know, and you yeah. didn't really try to bring it out. And, and, you know, a lot of people are like, well, if they're not talking about it, then they're fine, you know. Which is usually the opposite, right? Like, if they're not talking about it, they're usually not fine. I think I have the personality of a silent sufferer. So to just keep the peace, I don't like talking about things. I don't like talking about myself. So I would prefer to just hold it in. I think another thing that plays into that is when transracial adoptees do talk about things, sometimes, you know, there's, I don't want to say silence, but basically silence. So for example, someone would touch my hair 
And, you know, I tell someone like, oh my gosh, this white person just touched my hair or whatever. Like, who does that? I'm not a petting zoo. And people would come back and say, oh, like, I'm sure they're just, you know, not used to that type of hair. They're just trying to, you know, tell you it's beautiful. And that's considered a micro invalidation, right? So you're telling me that my perception of what happened is wrong, basically. And so I felt like that played into it as well, because I was always being told, oh, they meant this, or oh, don't take it like that. Don't take offense to, you know, different things that also made me feel like I couldn't share Mm -hmm. things that were happening. Mm -hmm. And so, and I failed miserably to mention this in the beginning, that you now are working as an adoption worker. Sorry that I didn't say that in the beginning. But yeah, I, I didn't either. But yeah, I am an adoption worker full time. And then I also have a part time job where I work at a group home for girls who are in foster care that are pregnant or already have children. Mm-hmm. So you having seen what it was like for you as a kid who internalizes and, you know, we hear a lot about kids who are external. They act out on these feelings. But there are plenty of kids who internalize I mean, how did that play out for you? What did you have to go through to now be on the other side where you are talking about it and you're very open about it and you're on a podcast talking about it? Yeah. So I, during college, I mentored two girls that were transracially adopted and they were saying things that I felt at that time, but even more so, you know, while I was home being raised in this white space. And I realized the gap, right? Their parents are speaking like, oh, they love it. Everything's perfect. Rainbows, butterflies. And then I'm doing one-on-one mentorship with these girls. And that is far from what they're saying. So I realized that there was this gap. And a lot of it was race-based. And I knew before that I wanted to be an adoption worker, but that really prompted me to want to do this work, right? I have experienced it. I've talked to other people that have experienced it. And there's a disproportionate amount of children of color in foster care that need to be adopted. Um, And so I realized that this is going to continue happening and what can I do? What insight can I give to hopefully bridge that gap between transracial adoptees and their white adopted parents? Well, I'm all ears, girl. So <laughs> I always like to, I think I always ask, almost always ask this question because it's how my mind works. And I think it's really why many of our listeners probably come to our podcast is what are some practical ways white adoptive parents what like what are some things your parents did that helped you or that you see white adoptive parents doing now or maybe that you wish more white adoptive parents would do to help bridge that gap right I think my parents being strategic in placing me like I said in that dance studio right there was 15 20 on the way to that dance studio that I could have gone to but they were intentional with the fact that they wanted me to have people around me that looked like me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another thing was taking me to a beauty salon, um, a black beauty salon. Don't take your kids to no great clips, okay? We need our hair done by someone who knows our hair. <laughs> and that to me was the best thing ever. I went and got my hair relaxed for years every eight weeks. And when that eight weeks came around, it was the best thing ever. My mom would drop me off and it was just a safe space for me to be surrounded by wise, older black women. And even though I wasn't really engaged in their conversations, I was just hearing it and I was seeing how this was a safe haven for them. Um, Hmm. So things like that helped me. Something that I think of is (laughs) when I was in college, I was talking to this woman who had recently adopted an African-American child. 
And she was talking to me and was just saying, Lydia, I know it would be important for him to be surrounded by people that look like him, but I'm uncomfortable with it. I can't do it for my own comfortability. And that really irritated me because she basically wanted me to affirm her and tell her, it's okay as long as, you know, he's loved by you. No, that's not, that's not enough. Children need racial mirrors to talk with, to have shared experiences with. So if you're not comfortable being in spaces with people who look like your child, that's a sign right there. That's like, we need to have a conversation. But I would tell parents, if you don't feel comfortable going to a barbershop or a beauty salon, or if you wouldn't go to a Black Lives Matter rally, or if you wouldn't switch churches for your child, have people that look like them to have those experiences, that's problematic. Mm -hmm. Because what are you telling your kid? And what does that say to them that you don't value their race, their identity? We are rooted in that, right? Mm -hmm. And they have been removed from that and placed in an environment that is unnatural. Right. So doing things like that, I think, are good starting place for foster and adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that you called it what it is and called it unnatural because I think there's this, uh, you know how people talk about how um, a lighter person will go to a country of brown children and take the picture. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we talk about saviorism and um, I'm not saying any of that's not real. It is unnatural. Any adoption is unnatural because it did not occur through natural means. Right. But it's necessary and it's going to happen. And exactly. based on the way foster care works and the way that placements work, there's no way. They don't even barely match half the stuff you say you're equipped for. So they're certainly not going to say, oh, you know, we have to make sure every child is in a family where they look like the people. It's just not realistic. Yeah. That's not possible. And that's okay. You know, and we, you and I, I think talked about this, that people kind of go to these extremes and it's like, we can acknowledge it, but then we just have to make the best of it, you know, and just acknowledge, which sounds like your parents did, we don't look like you. I don't know how to do your hair. You know, I have to learn or I have to take you over here. Um, But there are certainly things that we can do to make ourselves more approachable and to be more understanding. And yeah, to definitely not avoid other people. Yeah. I mean, if you have to avoid people that your child looks like, not sure why you're parenting a child that you're afraid of people who will look like them when they grow. They're going to not always be an adorable little baby or a young person. Exactly. Exactly. One of my foster um, daughters who I had for a couple months last year, we, my, my daughter's hair, my adopted daughter's hair is really similar to mine um, in texture, but it's just Mm -hmm. super curly. So it didn't take me too long to really learn how to, handle it and you know what's best for her hair and blah blah blah. but one that came to me last year her hair was much more coarse and it was it did not look good when she came to me I told my husband we have we gotta take her somewhere you know so and I had never been to a black salon before but I knew that's where we were gonna have to go and um girl I had no idea I wish like I feel like somebody could have recorded it and like just laughed at me the whole time but I did it I mean it was it was our community, our city is like very diverse in terms of African-Americans and Caucasians, like our blend. So I'm thankful for that because my daughter gets that in her schooling and just in her regular day-to-day interactions. But I mean, it was kind of awkward. I, you know, my daycare worker actually, you know, connections and she said, this is a good place, take her here. And so the lady actually opened up on a Saturday and she usually never does that. And so we could come in. I had no idea, one, how much it was about to cost me because they put like 
fake hair in her head. I was, I was texting my husband. I'm like, I don't know how much this is going to be. I didn't realize what they were doing. It might be like hundreds of dollars, you know? Yeah. And then I didn't realize how long it was, we were going to be there. Mm-hmm. Now I understand that you said your mom dropped you off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were there for hours, hours. And I remember at first feeling really awkward, but then I just kind of stood up and we kind of was watching what she was doing and asked her, hey, do you have any recommendations for what, like, how often does she need to do this? How often does she need to oil or how often, you know, and it was really enlightening. And I think sometimes white parents <laughs> maybe overthink, I know I do at least, um, yeah. the reaction of the African-American community to what we're doing. And you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And and so I think sometimes it's scary to put yourself out there and be like, hey, um, can you teach me what I need to do here? Um, but my experience was very positive, but definitely I learned so much and it bridged me with some new people, mm-hmm. you know, that I've never probably would have had the opportunity to really connect with. Um, on a more personal level. So I do think while it can be super scary and intimidating, you can feel way, way out of your place, very unknowledgeable. Okay. You have to, re- you have to recognize like I am, <laughs> I am ignorant of this culture. And if I'm going to foster or adopt children of any race, then I need to be open to feeling uncomfortable and recognizing my ignorance on this topic, this culture. And, um, so it's it's definitely been interesting, and I'm I'm kind of anxiously excited to see what that what awaits me, what new information awaits me in the future as far as fostering and adopting um, children of different races. So yeah, I definitely now know that I should just probably drop them off there because it's gonna be a lot. But I also appreciate your insight into you just being there alone, probably without your mom there. Um, mm-hmm really you were able to absorb everything that you did if she had been there i'm not quite sure if you would have had the same experience would you say sure i would absolutely say that and i think it is it's great for you know foster and adoptive parents to acknowledge that you know maybe it's a little intimidating (laughs) because i don't know right and what i tell people is at least for me i can't speak to all adoptees and all foster children but that uncomfortability is how I feel walking into any white space right. yeah. every day, all day for my whole life. Right. Like, it's just like, Ooh, I don't know, but mm-hmm. these people are here to help you. When you right. go to a hair salon, this is their profession. They know everything. So ask them questions. Right. Ask them. That's totally normal and okay. They will tell you what products to use. They will you know, help you in any way. And like you said, you know, you were like, oh my gosh, how much is this going to cost? I think that's partially a reason why some adoptive parents choose not to get their children done because it is expensive. Mm -hmm. But it was not as expensive as I thought it was going to be though. Well, yeah. And also you would spend that money on other things, right? You would spend that Mm -hmm. on presents for your kid Mm -hmm. if your kid needed something else to you know I don't even know right like parents are willing to invest in other things hair is important yes like if we don't have oils in our hair if we don't have you know a nightcap on our hair will break Mm -hmm. and so there's things that you have to do to you know make their hair thank god I have boys so I have to Right, but even still, like your child should be going to a barber shop mm-hmm. to make sure that it's being taken care of in the way it's supposed mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, adoptive parents need to realize that mm-hmm. maybe it's more costly than your haircut or getting your hair done. It's going to take a long time, mm-hmm. but that's just part of the community and culture, right? Like. Yeah. The woman who did my hair, there was one woman in a beauty salon. She would book four or five of us, right? Like I wasn't getting my hair done the whole time, but it was just a community. We were all talking, listening to music, whatever. And that's just, that's how it is. And that's, that's. Well, parenting is an investment. 
And I think sometimes, I think sometimes we want to forget that. I mean, no matter what child you're parenting, I mean, we talk about this a lot. If you have a biological child, you don't know what their needs are going to be. Like you just said, I mean, they could have a special need in some way and you as the parent would manage their need. That's what you would do. So if you're signing up, and again, none of us are forced to take any child into our home. You know, social workers don't come with a gun to our head and say, we have to. You know, if a kid is standing at my door who doesn't look like me and I say, yes, they can come in. I am basically saying I'm willing to invest in what this is going to bring and the challenges that this child may have that may be related to the fact that they don't look like me, you know, and I'm going to have to make some adjustments on my part. And sometimes I think we do like the idea of having a multiracial family, maybe more than we like what it actually takes for it to be a healthy one. Yeah, absolutely. And it does take a lot. It's not impossible to have Mm -hmm. a healthy, productive, multiracial family. It just takes time and effort Mm -hmm. to be culturally competent Mm -hmm. because you can't raise a child of color the same way that you would raise your white child. So it's going to take time. You're going to have to educate yourself. Maybe it is a little uncomfortable, but it should be worth it for your child's racial well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, can I ask you kind of what seems like a silly question? Yeah. I don't know if it's silly, but I guess it's something that I think about a lot. Okay. Um, so how, I don't want to say how important, but something that I stress about a lot with my daughter that I don't actually act on, if I'm being honest, is just the entirety of her African-American culture, her African culture and like music mm-hmm. and I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking this, but even, okay, let's just go with music. Okay. I stress about what music should I be playing around the house so that when she goes to school and her other African-American friends talk to her, she's not like, who is that? And then they're like, what kind of African are you? You African-American are you? You know what I'm saying? Like, is that, I guess like on the ear. I struggled with that because I grew up in a white Christian household and we listened to like, Stevie Wonder, The Supremes, Michael Jackson, right? Like, right. her friends weren't, they were listening to pop music. They're listening to Tupac and, you know, other people like that. And I didn't know that music. And it was embarrassing. And they'd be like, I'd either pretend I knew the words or I was just like, they were like, you don't know this, right? And music is a universal thing, right? We yeah. all listen to music, but I don't think it's something necessarily to stress about. Like, I'm like, should I just try to be more intentional though about? Yeah, yeah. But also, like is some of that are... is some of that our whiteness, or is some of that the fact that we're yeah. Christian? Because I also know right. kids uh, from African American families whose parents are way stricter than I am about what they listen to. Like their mamas are like, it better be gospel, you know, type. Like you're not listening. Yeah. So I think for me, I do connect to gospel. Oh, I love gospel music now. I I grew up, like I've said multiple times, in a white family. I went to a very traditional, low-key white church. And growing up, you know, our church, they had the piano, the organ. Oh, very traditional. Whatever, like hymns Mm -hmm. all the time. And growing up, you know, it was whatever. And I started feeling like I didn't connect to my faith because music is how I connect. Music is my therapy. So I love music and worship at church, but I just wasn't feeling connected to my church. And even when I went to college, I went to a Christian school. It was more contemporary. And at first I was like, okay, I can do this. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't connect to it. And I started listening to more gospel music. I always listen to it, but strictly gospel music. And I went to a multiracial church and it kind of brought me back, right? I was like, oh my gosh, I wasn't just someone losing their faith. I just didn't connect in that way. And so I think it is important to be intentional. I mean, it's like, 
are you only going to read your child white books? Right. No, you're going to read them books with people who look like them. Mm-hmm. You know, representation matters. So why would you only have your child listening to white music? Right. <laughs> because that's not representative of who they are. And all music, but I think a lot of times black music tells a story. It's something that we can connect with. So I think it, it is important for your child to be listening to music. You know, Put some Kirk Franklin on in there, girl. Kirk Franklin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we do. I just, right. I don't know. Sometimes I have this idea in my mind that there's like, and I know there's not, like a checklist, like a list of like, you know what I'm saying? Like there's a list of specific, (laughs) I'm just being real. I'm like, are there certain artists and like songs that are just timeless that her friends, I don't know, I'm a two. So I'm just always wondering about her experiences (laughs) at school. And I just never want her, she already has the adoptive thing going on so I just never want her to feel other than any other way and I know that's unrealistic and she's going to especially because of her race like I acknowledge that and I educate myself on that part but I'm like I don't want something like music to make her feel <laughs> like because I didn't play this person but do you ask her just be like so what do your friends listen to at school yeah, yeah. like I would just ask her and be like oh my gosh because I'm the type who I have different playlists for different things right like I have my gospel Saturday morning cleaning playlist Mm -hmm. I have my showering playlist Mm -hmm. I have my car playlist so just ask her and be like oh my gosh we should make a playlist of like Mm -hmm. your songs for when we go places and then you can learn them and then it's just yeah I like how you organize your playlist by location (laughs) (laughs) different events in my life and it's crazy I have a workout playlist like it's it's yeah. I'm more like mood. I'm more like mood or like the genre. You go cleaning. No, Saturday yeah. morning cleaning. Okay, that's a tangent, but I'm just saying. So, okay. no, but I really do. Yeah. So, you started to touch on this a little bit, but I want you to talk about growing up in the church adopted mm. and some of the messages you got about that. Because I think people do not talk about this enough, it needs to be talked about. So, where do I even start with this? I think something that I heard a lot of, especially in church, was the you're so lucky that you were adopted or, you know, this was God's plan, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was difficult because in all aspects of my life, but especially in church, I felt like I was just wearing this mask of gratefulness mm-hmm. and constant happiness because I was being told that that's what I needed to be. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm a silent sufferer. So I was sitting with all these feelings of like, why would God have me be adopted by these white people? Right? Like why, would he take me out of something natural and place me in this very unnatural, uncomfortable place? But I'm being told that this was his plan all along. So I've wrestled with this a lot. And I don't think that's true. I just don't think that God's intention when he created us was for children to be separated from their birth parents. And I think the thing is, when people are saying that, they're not thinking about that aspect of it. They're just thinking, you are with a family that loves and cares for you. Mm -hmm. While that's true, for that to happen... There has to be brokenness. Right, there has to be brokenness. And that's what adoption is. Adoption is rooted in brokenness. And so that is what makes it hard when these people of faith are telling you, you should be lucky. Yeah. Or you are lucky. You should be grateful. And this is the best thing ever. Right. And we talked about, it's also hard because these, I'm assuming, it sounds like your family was very involved in church. The people that were saying that were probably people that you also knew loved you. And 
to some level or cared about you on some level. And you know, they're not like evil, like evil blaring racists. Like, you know, like they're not like bad in that sense. I think sometimes that makes it, it's almost easier to be mad at somebody who's blatantly awful. Right. Than somebody who's well-meaning, but completely uneducated, or they just don't know what they're saying. And so we just need to be aware um, and that's what we're trying to do is educate people so they don't keep saying these platitudes that they don't mean any harm by, but can really make people question God and their faith and be very confused about their identity and their story when that's the opposite of what they're probably trying to produce. Right. And yes, I think that's really important. Like I said, like you said, I don't think people are just, they're well-intentioned, but and so that makes it hard to call it out too, right. right? Because they get all defensive or white fragility is mm-hmm. alive and well. And they're like, oh, I didn't. Tears. <laughs> it's a whole thing. So, you know, a lot of times it's like not even worth addressing and just like, mm-hmm, yeah, right. But people do need to realize what they're saying. And I think that words are powerful and there was a point where I did question my faith because of this right and I think whether it's adoption or other things in life people are like where is God in this or why is he allowing this to happen and God makes beauty from ashes and my ashes were my adoption and I have now become grateful for my adoption, not because I was told to, but because I have realized the greatness in my adoption. But that doesn't mean it's not hard. That doesn't mean that it hasn't been a struggle, mm-hmm. you know, but I think adoption is one of those things. Adoption is a loss. It's trauma and it's, you know, it's loss and grief. And it's one of the only things that, through grief and loss, we're told to be resoundingly grateful. Mm-hmm. When someone dies, the first thing you say isn't, well, you need to be grateful. When someone mm-hmm. has a miscarriage and loses a child, the first thing you say is not, well, you need to be grateful. Mm-hmm. Those are losses. And for some reason, when it comes to adoption, we're told you need to be grateful. And that's hard and that's difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think foster moms definitely get the whole, they were well-intentioned, I know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's the white savior thing, too. Yeah. I mean, I'm not so, an adoptee, yeah. and I've gotten those, you know, those messages from people um, about what yeah. we're doing, you know. Mm-hmm. Right, and I hear people say that, and they're like, your parents are just the most amazing, right? My parents are amazing. I love them. But adoptive parents and foster parents don't get a gold trophy for doing this, mm-hmm. right? Like that's not what they're going into it for. That's not right. Yeah, that's not what it's. About. We really don't want one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and any foster and adoptive parent shouldn't. No, it's not. You're not doing this for a hand clap and a Nobel Peace Prize, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, but for some reason that is kind of the narrative that has been Mm -hmm. set for adoption. I think that, uh, (laughs) because I was just thinking, what are some things that are appropriate for people who aren't connected to it to say? It's kind of like when somebody does pass away, people don't know what to say. They start saying stuff that's real left, like, you know, you're like, why did that come out of your mouth? You didn't need to speak. You know, people just feel like they need to say something. I think yeah, that's really right. what it is. They, somebody you lost, somebody died tragically and people just don't, they feel awkward. And so they're just like, here's some verbal throw up that makes no sense whatsoever. And I have no relationship with you to even say anything. So I, I'm just trying to process. I feel like people want to somehow be supportive or, you know, I'm I'm trying to understand where they're coming from that they even need to make the comment. And right. is it just, you know, it actually would be better for you just not to say anything. 
Or are there some appropriate questions or praise? Because praise isn't bad, you know? Like, what is okay to say? I mean, for me, I say nothing. Mm -hmm. Like, people would see my parents out with Mm -hmm. me, right? There's clearly a difference. And they feel like that gives them the right to say something. Mm -hmm. I don't want to talk about being adopted, right? I'm still going through the grief cycle. Mm -hmm. I don't want to talk about it. So if you don't know the person, you shouldn't be saying anything. Mm -hmm. What does it even matter to you? Right. So I think that's important to realize that, and that we are entitled to tell you anything. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people would ask me questions, even people that I, you know, was kind of like acquaintances with, or people's parents all the time. When I'd go to play dates, people's parents were all in my business. Mm. And I felt obligated to answer. So I would, but I would literally like have tears in my eyes and they'd be like, oh. And it's like, no, I'm upset. I'm mad that you feel like you can just ask me mm-hmm. this, right? Yeah. Like, there are other familial dynamics that we don't just openly talk about, right? Like if I know someone's parents divorce, are divorced, I'm not just like, so... What happened? Right. Like, it's important to realize that this is or can be a touchy subject. And so you can't just walk up to people and be like, so tell me about being adopted or tell me this or that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to talk about Mm -hmm. it. And I'm still like that. Like, if someone, even at 23 years old, if someone, even from church, was like, oh, so tell me this or that, I would feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because one, this isn't a place to talk about it. Like, what two I don't want to I don't want to share that if I haven't brought it up right then I probably don't want to talk about it Mm -hmm. and there's probably a difference between a platitude you're just saying because you feel awkward and like it's the elephant in the room you know and so you're like oh your parents are really great by the way how lucky you know versus if we went out to coffee or something and I was getting to know you, you know, and, and I was to ask you about what growing up was like, or, you know. Right. Well, that's a general question, right? You're not saying, so what was it like being adapted? You're saying, tell me about your life growing up. And if I choose to share about being adopted and what that was like, that's up to me. But I think it's important for people to realize what they're actually asking you're asking me to talk about something that i view as traumatic Mm. why why is that your business why do i need to talk about that right yeah so let the adoptee lead you know unless you have a really intimate relationship with the person (laughs) and because i know some who would tell everyone like they will tell everyone they're adopted my gosh this happened to me that and that's fine but again Mm -hmm let them lead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, I think that's what it comes And down. when in doubt, just be quiet. Yeah. And I couldn't imagine being asked about my trauma. Right. All the time. That's not because adoption. it's obvious. Like I couldn't imagine. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about your trauma. Can we talk about that right now? Like just that constantly being brought mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Or I have that privilege of nobody really knows my trauma except for my closest friends right. and family. So I, yeah, putting in that perspective of just, I would hate for that to just be the center of like any conversation or and comment. Like, yeah. And I understand that people, a lot of people don't have a personal connection to adoption. They don't know anyone. They've never experienced it. So it's very intriguing to people, right? The only thing right. they know about it is from like, this is us or the blind side. <laughs> Right. So be like, oh, let me hear about it. You tell me. But again, it's trauma, and I don't, I don't want to talk about it. This isn't an appropriate place. Right. You know, a lot of times people are like, oh, so you're adopted. The next question that follows is like, so what happened to your birth mom? Mm. Or so like, was something wrong? Like people think there's something medically wrong. They think, you know, if they don't know I was adopted as an infant, maybe it was behavioral, right? Like there's all these assumptions that are made off the bat, right? From this jump. Mm. And it's, it's very frustrating. I'll, I'll say that. So I, yeah. I honestly would encourage people, unless they know the person, to not really 
bring it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I would say in the family that I'm just, I'm making it clear to people. We're talking about people outside of the family unit. If you're in the family unit as the parent, you need to be talking about it <laughs> because you're well, probably thinking say- about it and they yeah. need to feel comfortable talking to you. But outside of the yeah. family unit, other people need to mind their business and let the adoptee have their process and not feel like they owe you. Like I th- I've never thought about it like that, but that really was helpful to me that our, your trauma is obvious because you don't look like your parents. And so that makes people think they're entitled to know the story. And that's really not fair. Because like you said, there's really nothing else. Maybe the only other thing would be if you had a physical uh you know something physically like you didn't have one of your limbs or something and right. so people are like oh i can see that injury what happened you know but there's nothing else and like you said it's important for parents to create safe spaces for their adoptee to talk about adoption mm-hmm. i would say even though extended family like i would have even been put off if i was like at a family reunion with like yeah a second cousin and they came up to me. I think, I mean, that's just. Yeah. I mean, close, intimate, the people you're living day to day. Family. <laughs> Immediate yeah. family. But even, you know, some people who are more extended feel mm-hmm. they can say things. So I don't know. And that's just, that's for me personally. I'm mm-hmm. not going to say that all adoptees feel that yeah. way. Um, but for me, I would be caught off guard and when I when I get stressed, I kind of like close off and I kind of shut down. And I would shut down if someone, mm-hmm. even someone that I've known for years, like if someone from church or something was to like randomly bring it up, I would feel very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you gotten better at um, maybe when people make those comments, those well-meaning comments to counter them? Or do you just still just let it like not answer and let it go? Most of the time, I just let it go because I got a little tone when I say things that, you know, God's still working on me. (laughs) But usually I let it go because, again, it turns into this cycle of they get defensive, they start crying. Then it goes from me addressing an issue to now me comforting them because they're offended that I'm offended, right? It's just like, it's too much. Like I, mm. I kind of have to pick and choose what are teaching moments and what I'm just right. like, because if I address everything, I would, I already am exhausted, right? Like I'm exhausted being mm. a black woman. I'm exhausted being an adoptee. Mm. And to always address those things would just be too much. Yeah. It'd be way too mm-hmm. much. But I think it's important for if adoptive parents are around for them to address it. Mm -hmm. They don't want to talk about that or that's not appropriate because I think a lot of times it's kind of like, we're all kind of awkward and that's parents should be helping their child navigate those situations if they're there, which I mean, a lot of times for me, it was like when I was alone, (laughs) didn't have like a defense to go to. Mm Right. So, okay. So then this makes me think this. So I, my typical strategy, and then I'm very willing to reconsider it, but my typical, because I'm of the younger variety and my children are older. So I have that too. So not only do I not look like them, (laughs) but there's almost no way I could have birthed them. So people be real confused. Um, And I usually, and I have in front of them, Like I have just told people because they're looking, their faces are just looking so confused. You know, they'll just be like, oh, and they're just there looking stupid. And and I'll just be like, they're adopted. Like these are my adopted sons. Like I just kind of, and then I'll even like say to the boys after like, why are people not, I don't understand why people can't comprehend this. And they usually seem okay, but I'm kind of one, like I'll just answer it for them or, you know, unless they, or there was one time a, there was one time a coach made a comment about, how much how cute one of them was as a baby and um so they didn't know he was adopted I guess um how cute he was as a baby and how he must have given me so much trouble or something and and like I don't jump into that and be like oh he's adopted I didn't do that 
you know, but if somebody's looking dumb or straight up asks, I will just answer. And I don't necessarily mm-hmm. say, you know, you really don't need to ask that or that's not appropriate, but maybe I should. And I mean, that's a conversation to have with your child because again, every child's going to be different. Maybe your kids, cause they're older are like, yeah, I don't care. Tell them that I'm adopted. Don't, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And some kids might be like, again, why is that their business? Why does it matter mm-hmm. how we're related and how we're connected? Mm-hmm. All that matters is that we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a really good point too. This is not yeah. a one size fits all. And we need to listen to <laughs> adoptee voices, but the specific adoptees that we know and have in our homes, and we need to let them have some control or most of the control when it comes to that. So that's a really good reminder. Right, because at the end of the day, they're your child. So if someone's looking, be like, can I help you? This is my child, right? If they ask, who is that? My child. What? It's my child. Like I said, didn't stutter, right? So making it clear that this is your child. It doesn't matter if they're your child through adoption or if they're a foster child or they're your child or older child or whatever you want to call it. Child, Right, yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's a good word. Good. I t- I learned t- I learned when I talked to you on the phone, and I learned again today. Yeah, I'm learning so much. I'm always learning. But yeah, I definitely think it's just up to the child mm-hmm. and what they're comfortable mm-hmm. with. Because I think, I mean, everyone knew I was adopted, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But even in stores, if my mom would have just been like, "They're adopted," I would have been like. And right, like, who, why are you telling them this? Like, let them wonder. Mm-hmm. If they're not bold enough to come ask me, let them wonder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's fine, like, you know, kind of talk with your mm-hmm. adoptive child about, okay, if someone does ask, what mm-hmm. what would you like me to say? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I tell them, you're adopted. Can, do you want me to say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's and we, yeah. I have had those conversations but I think boys I don't know if it's just boys or the personality of mine but they're just don't seem like they're as expressive like a lot of times I kind of get a it's cool either way and I'm like okay you know and I'll tell them like y'all gotta tell me because I can't read your minds so if you want me to do something different you gotta let me know but a lot of times they're like it's fine you handled it fine and I'm like okay so right yeah and that's fair. I mean, if they don't seem to have an opinion one way or the other, you're still not sharing personal information, right? Yeah. It's not like you should be like, yes, and their birth mother and yeah. this, this led to them, right? Like, we're not sharing yeah. that. But, you know, if they're okay with their adopted, that's fine. You can leave it at that. Mm-hmm. The person hopefully feels satisfied and will carry on with their lives. <laughs> oh, goodness. People. Usually never one question and done, so... that's a rough one so we have covered a lot of things Um, is there anything that you would not want to leave the episode without saying is there anything else you really want to make sure people know or that we missed that people need to be listening to adoptee voices Mm -hmm. Adoption is a lot of time talked about by adoptive parents, specifically white adoptive parents, when it comes to transracial adoption. And our voices need to be heard, as do birth mothers as well, but mm-hmm. we are not heard enough and we've been silenced. And so if you're going to adopt, don't just be listening to the voices of other adoptive parents. You need to be hearing the voices of every part of the triad right right well that is why we wanted to have you on because we want to do right in that sense so I I agree completely and I agree we need to the birth mother voice I feel like is a harder one to tap into it can be because they're silenced right yes I because I, since I've created, you know, my space on Instagram, mm-hmm. there are birth mothers that talk about their story. There's birth mothers who have podcasts mm-hmm. and talk about their story. Mm-hmm. So 
It's out there. You just got to look for it. Yeah. I'm, I challenge people to do their due diligence and not just say, oh, well, you know, there's not many. There are. Mm -hmm. There are ones that talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so it might just take, you know, more searching than hearing the voices of adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good challenge. Yeah. Good challenge. I take it. Take it to heart. Yeah, I felt positively challenged in our conversation today just to continue to be intentional um, about my daughter's race and her experiences in that and how to, I guess, even for our podcast mission, just to continue doing the hard work to find voices, adoptive voices, birth mom voices, just to better educate I know many of our listeners are already foster adoptive moms, but I think there's a good bit who are just kind of intrigued, like you said, like they're just interested because they're, they don't have any connection really with it. Mm -hmm. So I think that is probably the most important thing for us to focus on going forward is just to continue to have those voices represented. I wish I would have made more of an attempt to hear those voices going into foster care and adoption. Not that it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done it, but I would have just known how to better, just been better prepared and maybe even better parent my daughter when she first came in. And I don't think that's stressed enough. Like I literally did what you did as a white person is I went to other adoptive moms <laughs> and other, and while I think that is really helpful to build community, I, I definitely agree that hearing from you and other adoptees that we've talked to or seen on Instagram has been has been precious for me as a parent. So, Yeah, and I think a lot of times, you know, parents are kind of in your situation where they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know a lot. Because there's not a lot of cultural competency training. Mm -hmm. But also, even if there's not, you have to do your own work Mm -hmm. to be reading books or what does, you know, the village around you look like? Are you friends with people of different races and things like that? Mm -hmm. I think it's important, but it's not too late to implement things into your child's life, whether it's going to different events or celebrating different things. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, just talking to them, creating a safe space where you can kind of figure out what they are, what their needs are Mm -hmm. and what they'd be interested in. And I would I would venture to say that it's not even too late if your child is grown because yeah. it sounds like that's a place of pain and a place where a lot of adoptees don't feel understood. And so to have their parents, even as adults, to say, hey, you know what, I was wrong or I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> I'm sure that that can still be something that can, you know, and I sometimes we do say, oh, I failed, you know, or I didn't, I didn't do enough. And we can, I mean, no matter where you are in life or any situation, we can walk around in shame and guilt about it. And so it's never too late to start improving and to admit and to make amends. And hopefully the other person feels the same way and there can be mutual healing. Right. Healing. That's the important thing is that's what we need. That's what adoptees need. And for a lot of us talking through it and talking about it, it's a way Mm -hmm. to heal. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming. And um, I'm glad to call you friend and to continue learning from you. Um, If people want to follow you on Instagram, what's your handle? (laughs) My handle is adoptee, the number two adoption worker. Yes. And we'll put that on our descriptions and stuff as well. So um, that more people can learn from you. And I think you're going to keep, I think you're only going moving on to bigger and better things. That's all I'm saying. I think think that God is really going to use your story and your voice. And I appreciate that you're out there hands-on teaching people. I know I would love to have you as an adoption worker. (laughs) I'm glad you're out there calling some people out and gently guiding them in the right direction. 
So thank you for that too. If you liked today's episode or any of our episodes, we'd really appreciate a kind review on Apple Podcasts or just to share with your friends who you think might be interested in hearing the stories that are told.